Welcome back to the Big Sparkcast, the podcast where we have big conversations about what matters most. The one thing that I think we all can attest to on a global scale is that the last 2 years has put the topic of health at the forefront in a way like never before. We were forced to think about not only our own personal health but our friends and family, our community and society at large. We became experts in global responses and public policy and attitudes were heavily debated on the daily. And while the World Health Organization has declared the end of the pandemic is in sight, it does leave us with many questions around the where to from here for the future of health and healthcare. I am delighted to sit down with Dr. Sherlene O. Sherlene is Chief Strategy and Population Health Officer at Hampshire Hospitals Foundation Trust. Sherlene has extensive experience in both public and private sectors and has previously held senior positions at GSK and Imperial College Health Partners. She has a PhD, an MBA, a master's in population health and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry. As you can imagine and as you will find out I caught Sherlene on a busy day in the NHS office and I'm very very grateful to her for giving her time. I started our conversation by asking Sherlene for her definition of health and what she sees as its biggest threat. I believe that the biggest threat in our healthcare systems is the lens through which we think about health and how we talk about it. So the more conventional response I could give you would be to talk about the lack of healthcare resources and workforce globally to address the growing demand from a growing population with increasing life expectancy people you know living longer which means that they've got longer term health conditions that need to be supported and clearly with the recent covid pandemic and dealing with that and the consequences of it but that means that we immediately lead to sickness and ill health rather than talk about policies and systems that genuinely support health the who defines health as a state of complete physical mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or of infirmity and it goes on to say that the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being without distinction of race religion political belief economic or social condition and i particularly like the sentence as well the health of all peoples is fundamental to the attainment of peace and security and is dependent on the fullest cooperation of individuals and states so it puts the onus on both us yes. and you know our government the other concept that i would like to raise here is one put forward by the medical uh, sociologist aaron antonovsky in 1979 he put forward the concept of the sense of coherence and this explains uh, why some people become ill under stress right. while others right. get healthy despite having the similar stressful circumstances and he called this the salutogenic approach the health right. creation approach and it searches for the origins of health rather than the causes of disease and components yeah. so he talks about comprehensibility which is the extent to which events are perceived as, mm-hmm. as making sense to us there is some consistency there is some structure mm-hmm. he talks about manageability and that mm-hmm. is the extent to which someone feels that they can cope he talks about meaningfulness and 
meaningfulness, I think, is a key component. It's about yeah. how one feels that life makes sense and yeah. that challenges uh, are worthy of commitment, I think, resonates with, you know, conversations with purpose. And yes. the whole yes. purpose and meaning being yeah. actually key. And he says that it comes with and interacts with people's natural coping style, which comes from their upbringing, their financial assets, their right. social support. The extent to which these are available is a major determinant. Uh, and this is also supported by, uh, you know, the wider determinants of health work that's the Michael Marmot has done. Mm -hmm. It's also borne out in what uh, is known as the Blue Zones, where research on the healthiest, longest-lived people in Japan, in uh, Okinawa, in, in Sardinia, in Italy, in right. Costa Rica, in Greece, California, it shows that um, instead of focusing just on behavior change and habits, the places and spaces in which people spend most of their time contribute to those healthy long lives. Mm -hmm. So living environments where exercise is tied up with our daily life, yeah. we need to walk and, and move and so on, to you know how we get to work etc yeah. and being part of what we do the sense of purpose yeah. when we wake up in the morning having routines that actually mm. shed stress so whether it's mm. hanging out with friends or having you know mm. real time on on a daily basis sizing relationships connections being supported by friends and family socially and you see you know people just gathering to laugh and play daily mm. Uh, mm. and going towards plant-based diets. Uh, I'm sure genetics plays a role to that. But these were some of the findings of the blue zones. I guess our health is much more connected to each other in the planet in which we live. And I would argue that our healthcare systems are actually sickness care systems and illness systems. And we will continue to have increases in this unless we start to focus on health creation. Thank you, Shirlene. Gosh, this is such an amazingly sort of, you know, comprehensive response to, you know, how one could be looking at health, you know, purely the concept or even the definition. There were some really important lessons there for, I think, all of us to hear, but especially someone like me in terms of the importance of exercise and, you know, being, being driven by a sense of purpose and health. Super, super important and very, very insightful, something for us to think about. Shalene, with that as the concept that you hold in your head, you know, in terms of, you know, the approach to health, what do you think are some of the kind of toughest conversations that are happening in healthcare today or indeed need to be happening in healthcare today from where you're sitting? Globally, we will be 18 million healthcare workers short by 2030. And in wow. England, this is going to be, you know, about 1.1 million 40% of our um, nursing population yeah. uh, didn't train in the UK in our hospital. And right. it's unlikely there'll be more funding and more staff forever. So we need to think about the way we deliver our services and we need to, to, to think about our, our workforce. So that is one tough conversation. And you would have heard that in the media yeah. as well. So the doing then, more with less thing that keeps being talked about, right? Yes, and how we do yeah. things differently and, yeah. and the role we individually play. So yeah. that, that is um, uh, something that needs further conversation. And of course, the introduction of digital consultations is a different way of doing things, yeah. virtual hospital at home. And all these were accelerated during COVID. But then there were people who were also digitally excluded. So 
you know, who are these services helping? Who are they impacting on who are not receiving this? Mm. And for us to achieve this, we also need to understand the state of our, you know, digital infrastructure. 27 hospitals today still don't have electronic patient records in the UK. And where there are electronic systems that don't connect to each other, this becomes really hard. Uh, And of course, if patients don't have patient health records, it means that, you know, we can't talk to health systems. In Asia, where I grew up, we hold our records, including, you know, our scans, our images, our doctor's notes. And the benefit of that is that there is a level of transparency in, you know, the notes that doctor makes, makes on us. And there is an expectation that the doctor provides the expertise, but I own my health. Yeah. I own my yeah. Fitness. Very similar uh, to, to India as well, where I grew up, Shalene, in terms of, you know, having the information with you, holding that power of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Another conversation is clearly the pandemic and COVID-19. And, uh, you know, it has alerted us to the potential of future zoonotic and infectious diseases that could further test the resilience of health systems. And it has exacerbated what we we know are pre-existing inequalities in health. So it has hit people on lower incomes and those from minority backgrounds the hardest. Older people, the disabled, those classes, clinically extremely vulnerable, have all experienced worse outcomes. Um, And, you know, ethnic uh, minority groups saw higher death rates uh, and those living in the most deprived parts of the country were more negatively uh, affected than than those in the least deprived areas. So that's another difficult conversation that needs to be had. And closer to home, this year, the Health and Care Act has introduced legislation to support the joining up of health and care uh, Mm -hmm. services, which means that health bodies now need to abide by what is known as the triple aim. So better care for patients, better health and well-being for everyone and sustainable use of resources. So there will be uh, two component parts to this, which are integrated care boards who will be responsible for the NHS functions and integrated partnerships that will oversee the wider public and population health efforts. Again, uh, quite a lot of discussion on you know, how this will evolve and how this will support to join up further to provide this, uh, the set of services. And of course, the underfunding of, of the yeah. NHS and, and also social care, which has resulted in hospitals not being able to discharge patients and therefore, you know, causing uh, longer wait times uh, when people come in. I'm just thinking, having, you know, heard about some of the pockets of challenges you know, particularly when looked at through the through the lens of the NHS, when you, in your quiet moment, you know, when you think, what do you think is the really difficult conversation, you know, for you that, that is either starting to happen or indeed is yet to take place? I believe that the very difficult conversations that are starting to take place and hopefully I hope they have all been started, are that we recognise that our health is being impacted by, you know, our planetary health. And we know that our social connections, economic status, behaviours and environments affect our health. Mm. Mm. And therefore, we need to talk about policies that are generative Mm -hmm. and that seek to enable these determinants. 
example, in 2011, uh, yeah. the UN unanimously adopted a General Assembly resolution that was introduced by Bhutan with support from 68 member states, calling for a holistic approach to development, which aims to promote the sustainable happiness and well-being. Where are we in adopting Bhutan's indicators in their Gross National Happiness Index? Wow, Shailene, I don't think I've even heard that in the narrative much, you know, what you just mentioned. And it's not being talked about. Locally in Hampshire, uh, we have the fantastic opportunity to build a new hospital as part mm. of the government's supporting new hospital program. Mm. Uh, we have been working really hard to ensure that this is an opportunity for the system to work together and to partner together in innovative ways and not to see this only as an upgrade to estates. We want mm. to transform uh, the models of care. We mm. want to transform how we work with partners in primary care, mental health, the voluntary mm. sector, local authorities, businesses, academia, mm. and our communities, our local communities, to address the social determinants of health and to build on the assets of neighbourhoods and communities. Mm. Mm. Um, we're also developing a campus for population and planetary health where we bring people from all walks and disciplines to address these challenges in a united ambition. Sounds really joined up, Shirlene, in terms of what you all are trying to achieve on the ground, you know, locally in Hampshire. But equally, I think you're, you're approaching this thinking that there needs to be something that is very much kind of, you know, a big shift at the global level in terms of the narrative that wraps up health and healthcare. Would that be right, Shailene, in terms of Absolutely. my sort of understanding? Absolutely. We are just a little exemplar. Um, and there are many, many systems yes. trying to do this. Uh, and collectively, you know, I believe we could make that difference. I'm, I've always been an optimistic person, but also a very pragmatic one. Uh, and with that collective ambition and with systems doing this, yeah. at school uh, yeah. and, and to actually influence policy that would make that difference. Thank you for that, Shirley. Let's talk a bit about that sort of moral obligation that sort of kicks in when it comes to when it comes to healthcare. Because, you know, there's always that very strong sense of kind of moral compass when one is even having conversations about health. Do you think we have a moral obligation to provide healthcare to everyone as needed? Or I'm probably being a little bit provocative here, Shirlene, but you know, I know it's someone who's worked in private healthcare as well as you have. Is healthcare a commodity that should be subject to the same marketplace influences as other commodities? And does this differ globally? You know, what are the pros and cons, Shirlene, of both approaches? You have seen so many models during the course of your life and experience. Health isn't a commodity. It's someone's life and their quality of life depends on their health. So mm. going back to the WHO definition, yeah. Yeah. it is a fundamental right of every human being. And if we start with this definition, it means that healthcare policy and systems need to recognize this right and address challenges to providing this right. So it may be helpful to clarify what we mean by public and private health spending and funding. People could obtain health services through, you know, automatic or mandatory schemes such as the NHS or compulsory social or private health insurance or voluntary health insurance. Mm -hmm. So public sources of income could be from taxation or from social contributions paid by employers, employees and others. In and that's the model in one part of the world, isn't it, Shirley? In the UK, as 
as we know it? Well, actually, in OECD countries, a substantial proportion of health spending, 71%, is funded out of public resources. Um, And in some countries like the UK and Norway and Denmark, a high share of the spending reflects exclusively governmental transfers. But in countries like Japan, public funding refers to a mix of social insurance contributions for employees and employers, um, about 43% as well as government transfers. So there are, you know, the two different uh, ways of uh, of funding public health. Right, right. Shalina, are there kind of other examples or models that you've seen or what is it about the National Health Service in the UK that sort of makes it quite unique or different compared to others? So I guess there are, you know, proponents of publicly funded healthcare um, and those who oppose it. uh, Yeah. So not being specific just to to the NHS, I think more generally, those who support publicly funded healthcare argue that higher quality of care is achieved and less, although less money is spent as a percentage of GDP and therefore, you know, the per per capita spent is less. Mm. And there was a 2000 WHO study that reported on this. Uh, But the critics claim that this study marked down countries for having private or fee-paying health treatment and rated countries by comparison to their expected healthcare performance rather than objectively comparing quality of care. Um, and then there is the often cited US uh, where, you know, yeah. it has a free market healthcare system which Correct. spends a higher proportion of its GDP, um, 15%, because it needs to provide profits to investors and that drives up costs. costs. And those who oppose publicly funded healthcare point to some of the Laws in publicly funded healthcare systems or poorer experience, longer wait lists, you know, slower to access innovative uh, new, new treatments. Um, I believe that our dialogue really needs to be, it's not about, you know, one against the other. It needs mm. to be about our obligation to design systems mm. to ensure that healthcare services are both accessible and affordable to every human being and to recognise as well that there are limitations to public resources and therefore to be able to provide choice as part of this system. Yeah, that's fascinating, Shalene. And I think, again, my question, I know, was one that, you know, very hard to, it's not one or the other, because, you know, there are many countries in the world, as as you mentioned and, and gave examples of, who perhaps started with one model and, you know, over the course of many years as you know, demographic challenges have have changed and evolved, et cetera, have gone for slightly different models. But I suppose this is the one conversation which will continue to be difficult and challenging for those of you who work in work in healthcare. So Shalene, it's hard not to have a conversation on health and not for for as long as we have, you and I just now and not mention the pandemic. We've come out of such a big, you know, sort of moment with all with all the kind of associated upheaval, disruption, etc. But such a big moment in humanity for all of us to have gone through this. So the pandemic led to many difficult conversations, particularly around the vaccine, Charlene, which led to polarizing perspectives and continues to. I mean, I've had so many such conversations, even in my in my own family. Now, it's hard not to ask you this question because you have worked for the pharmaceutical company in the past. So I suppose the question to you is, and I can ask you this, is 
should vaccines be mandatory? And how do we bring both sides, you know, kind of more openly to the table for conversations on such things? How do you see it, Shirlene, in your world? Well, what surprised me most as a scientist uh, who started out wanting to develop innovative medicines to help people with illness is the extent to which policies and the adoption of vaccines were based on political ideology and leaning. There is a paper published in the National Institute of Health showing how uh, left-wing and right-wing authoritarianism, social dominance orientation, or libertarianism ideologies explained vaccine acceptance and attitudes. So left-wing authoritarianism predicts higher vaccine acceptance of mandates and of also punitive policies, whereas the right-wing and libertarianism showed negative relationships and social dominance is linked to opposition to mandates. And I remember having long hours of dialogue when there was the possibility of NHS workers being mandated to be vaccinated as care workers had been. And the personal stories varied from you know, not trusting scientific data that was too early um, to some of the ideologies that were expressed above. There were really difficult conversations about very difficult choices of continuing to work for the NHS mm. in a job that someone absolutely loved and the belief that the vaccination poses significant risk to their health. For me, the only way really is to meet people where they are mm. and to have conversations individually through what actually Otto Sharma and his theory you calls, you know, an open mind, open and heart. open heart, and yeah. open yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Shalene. Shalene, did you find, I'm um, sorry, this is an additional question in a way, did you find you personally were caught in the middle of some of these conversations? I mean, how did you personally cope? Of course, there's a scientist in you and then there was you responding as a leader of a team or as a family member or as someone who was possibly consulting you. What did you go through in terms of emotions? Yes, I mean, it's easy to, 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 to argue it from, from the mind perspective and, you know, from the data perspective, etc., the heart of it was really about the heart and where we were, where people were emotionally. And some of them were based on, you know, personal experiences of adverse events that people had experienced with yeah. some medicines. And these were really personal. So I could totally understand their, their concerns. And I think it's about walking on a journey with them. So, you know, uh, very, very much about that open will and giving people the space and time to come to some of those decisions themselves and a lot of listening, I would say. Absolutely. This reminds me of my last conversation um, in the last episode, Charlene, with the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, who leads on the refugee crisis, who was talking about when she has to have very difficult conversations around the refugee crisis and said, if I appeal to people as an international lawyer, I wouldn't get very far. It's yes. really about, you know, that emotional connect, you know, the hearts, heart stuff, not always the mind stuff that really helps get through to people. And you're seeing the same thing as a scientist, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, scientists do have hearts too. Um, <laughs> and 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 I think I think that that human connection and the space and time and the listening, you never know, you know, what what people will do later on. But 
that 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 the quality of of listening i think uh, is a key part of that uh, dialogue as we've been talking i want to go back to something that you said earlier in the conversation which is stuck with me and you said it in the con- context of the most difficult and important conversation to have which is you said that the global demand for health workers will rise to a need for 80 million by 2030 double the cur- current levels that data has just stuck with me while the supply of health workers is expected to reach 65 million so oh. there will be a worldwide net shortage of 15 million oh. health workers which is staggering so again you know i want to go back to that question what more needs to be done shalene to bridge this gap i'm sure this keeps you awake at night in your current role and even otherwise it is topical adi as you know and we hear a lot about this in the media as well i would just point people uh to the uh you know brilliant book that mark brinell has written entitled human solving the global workforce crisis in healthcare this is a global issue not just a local issue and if we start to think about why this is a global problem it enables us to look more widely so mark recommends uh, a number of things and um i i just wanted to you know it's no point reinventing because he he has researched this and made some really good points and these are some of the points that he has made so he has said that we need to reframe and reposition the debate about workforce planning right. to one productivity how can we be much more productive with the workforce we have um and uh, what we spoke about earlier health mm. and no wealth creation the workforce mm. often seen as a cost the nhs is seen as a cost but actually we start to think about health being uh, both uh, a contributor to the the economic wealth of our country as well as you know uh, the social wealth so so it's about the the reframing and these yeah. are some of the conversations we we need to change as we discussed earlier for governments to start thinking about funding and and the overproduction of health workers knowing that uh, you know there will be jobs needed in the future there's also the new models of care that i spoke about earlier yes. about yes. you know how we are uh, joining up much better and the integration system in in a number of places like clinics in israel gesundes kinsigtar in germany uh, ribera salud in spain etc they are delivering results uh, that shows that joining up has right. actually boosted productivity by 16% right um, significant we stated earlier about the, the the who statement about the mm. partnership between individuals and states mm. and um by us being an active partner in our care for example uh uh in in the bronx in new york uh mm. it uses um you know systems to reduce hospitalizations uh mm. by active participation and that has reduced admissions by 30% mm. The other point is that communities can be carers as well. It is controversial as to whether we pay carers or not, but actually they are spending time and there has been a radical experiment in Germany that allows older patients to pay relatives or friends once they are trained to become home carers mm. and some people do that anyway, but actually, you know, it gives them the means to be able to do that. 
and that has resulted in patient satisfaction and reduced uh, admissions. Mm. Um, the other one, and we've tried some of this, um, mm. is the um, ability to allow health professionals to practice at the upper limits of their license, Birds or in Netherlands, where they allow right. nurses actually uh, decide how they are going to look after the group of patients they've been assigned to have shown productivity gains on nearly 30%. And we've tried this uh, in parts of our hospital as well, where we've right. given people you know, the responsibility to decide what they do and make decisions on when they take holidays, et cetera, uh, and uh, how much time they spend uh, yeah. uh, doing what they do uh, with, with patients. The other one is about um, having uh, a new uh, cadre of, of care workers mm. supported by technology that seamlessly straddle health, social care, and other statutory services. And the Silver Chain Australia is an example mm. of that. Mm. We spoke about digital uh, possibilities, mm. including mm. artificial intelligence, you know, robotics, cognitive assistance, uh, and this is clearly growing. Yeah. Um, and then I think um, the, the final two points for me are, um, you know, transforming the bureaucratic hierarchies to more agile learning organizations um, and recognizing that up to 36% of healthcare tasks can actually be automated. automated. Yeah. And we're just not ready for this. Yeah. Um, so it's how we bring people on that journey. And, and the final point is um, how we motivate uh, you know, and manage healthcare teams in a different way, um, yeah. so that you know uh, they they are supported, uh, and we have meaningful um, uh, ways to, to enable them to uh, do their best. Yeah, yeah. My God, Shalene. I mean, God, you certainly have thought about this issue, haven't you? And such amazing examples from all over the world around what seems to me as someone who's not in healthcare, but clearly, you know, deeply interested in, in it because it's so important and, you know, has such a huge impact on all our lives. Some amazing examples there from you, Shalene, about innovation, process innovation, you know, in healthcare, yes. process innovation, of course, use of digital and technology, et cetera, which could go a long way um, to, to fill that sort of, you know, 15 million gap as it were, that, that we were talking about. Um, incredible, incredible. And I know you have personally been associated in trying to bring some of this um, to, uh, to the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK. So I suppose, Shirlene, if I, were to, if I were to very quickly summarize what you've said, you know, issues around understaffing, underfunding, underappreciation are often spoken about, at least here in the UK, as core factors of why we see less people going into the healthcare profession. And some of the things that you have talked about, hopefully will help, will help counter that. Um, Shalene, one area slightly changing tack. The one area which is impossible not to talk about is obviously mental health. You know, um, with all this happening in healthcare, we are seeing, and of course, you know, it's not directly related to healthcare, it's about society at large. We are seeing suicide rates are still going up globally, you know, but coming back to the responsibility of healthcare institutions and governments, what should they be doing more and what conversations are not being had, particularly around health, mental health, Shirley? 
although there are now more open conversations about mental health, there is still a long way to go in accepting and understanding the range of mental health status we all live with uh, and the, the stigma associated with it. Uh, there is also the perception of uh, mental health disorders as a, a luxury good as opposed to actual illnesses. Yeah. And we have a fragmented and outdated service model um, and lagging policy changes and also a shortage of human resources uh, to be able to support mental health. And investing in mental health requires a, a multi-sectorial integrated approach. It's not just up yes. to mental health to resource. Yes. And we need a whole society approach with community-based involvement, along with primary care services, public health, social protection, um, how mental health is seen in jobs, uh, and also the education system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Charlene. You're so right when you say that it's a multi-sectoral integrated approach. But what more do we need, Charlene? You know, let's assume all of this is in place, some of, some of the things that you've highlighted. What more do we need? It seems to be something more than that, isn't it? Um, to really, to really be able to make make some headway into this into this area. Absolutely, um, we we need more more conversations, more research, more more investment into the mm. solutionic or health creating aspects of mental mm. health. Mm. And you know, we need to talk more about this. Mm. Um, Came across Martin Seligman's positive psychology work, and mm. uh, a significant moment in, in his life was, was his landmark speech in '98 right. at the time of his inauguration as the president of the American Psychological Association. Mm. Um, and he said then that psychologists need yeah. to study what makes people uh, oh, happy, happy, what makes happy people happy. Yeah. yeah. And he noted that the most important thing and the most general thing that he learned was that psychology was half-baked. Uh, we, they had, or we have baked the part about mental illness. Right. The other side's unbaked, the side of strength, the yeah. side of what we're good at, yeah. uh, that was not baked. And in many ways, this, this signaled the opening of a new perspective for the field of psychology. Amazing. And, yeah, and we are familiar. We are familiar with his forerunners. We mm. often talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the yeah. basic, you know, that need to be addressed. And he called uh, attention to humanistic psychology, yeah. um, which focused on human strengths and human potential. Um, you know, as well as clearly addressing neurosis, pathologies, and the next generation of psychologists. You know, like Seligman, Edina. Mm. Uh, Mihai, uh, mm. Chex and Mihai are, are working to uh, scientifically study the effects of positive emotions, mm. the way in which they affect health, performance, life satisfaction. Um, mm. And most importantly, their study shown that, uh, most importantly, mm. their studies have shown that actually um, positive mental health and happiness can be taught and learned. Uh, and actually, why are we not investing this in our schools, in our children? Yeah, amazing, Shadeen, amazing. I mean, such richness in thinking in terms of the whole discipline around, around psychology and what it can contribute towards, towards dealing with, with mental health. I have actually come across in some parts of the world, Shadeen, schools that are starting to look at curriculum around happiness, you yes. know. 
Um, yes. And it's, you know, um, small, small experiments are, are happening at a local level, like driven by local governments and local authorities, but they're start, definitely starting to look at. So your last question around why is the investment in these sco- in schools is, is absolutely a fundamental one, I think, which could absolutely. be, which could yeah. be transformative. Yeah. Yeah. And scaled. Um, at a much wider level. And that's just one, uh, uh, you know, amongst many uh, uh, other, I guess, more positive interventions we could be investing in. Yeah, but I love this notion that you've just introduced me and our listeners to, which is around that psychology is half-baked, you know. We bake the part of our mental illness, but we need to bake the bit that that we're good at. As someone who doesn't bake, you know, I'm I'm Mm. going to still hold on. Hold on to this to, to this analogy, Shailene. Very powerful one. Shailene, I'm going to change tack a little bit, if you don't mind, and talk a bit about um, the role of business, you know, because there's there, I feel there's such a strong and important and powerful role here. And again, I'm sorry to take you back to your past in a way, recent past, uh, pharmaceutical companies, particularly you know, companies, those whose bottom line is positively affected by their presence in, in a lot of the countries where we've talked about data and statistics around health issue, health indicators being high. Um, would you want to share some thoughts in response to that, Charlene? Well, I know that you had Paul Pullman in your first podcast. Yes, I did. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Uh, small world. I had attended a conference where he was speaking when I was working at GSK. And and what resonated with me most um, at the time was uh, his call for businesses to take responsibility for their total impact on the world. Um, And I thought that was really exciting. And he he was calling for businesses to lead with transparency and to focus on the long term. Um, And and it's, it's a big challenge to take responsibility for their total impact Mm. Um, and that because that's not necessarily what is just demanded of them, uh, you know, by by shareholders, uh, by people who are looking for short-term returns. You know, what's your next quarter performance? What are your dividends, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the power of of and I think is really important. Mm. Uh, mm. How how can you continue to perform? And uh, he mm. talks, uh, you know, to the role of businesses. Uh, being to be embedded in society as well as markets. So, you know, how can you do both uh, mm. and to recognize people's full humanity um, as well as economic interests? So integrating, you know, business and ethics in a more holistic model, I, I think that this is the role of business. And that's what, you know, we see uh, clearly uh, with leaders like Paul uh, and others uh, who are actually enacting this. Absolutely. And he's he's tried to capture all of this in his new book, uh, Net Positive, Charlene, which is a which is a um, fascinating read. But when you look around you, Charlene, does it give you hope that, um, you know, business will be moving in this direction? Yes or no answer from you on that one. (laughs) Well, there there are, you know, there's always a range, isn't there? And we hope that, you know, there are more and more people uh, and more and more uh, leaders uh, who are who are talking about it, who are actually making things happen. I've always been a positive person, and I think as long as there is hope and there is purpose, and the purpose in this is really clear, yeah, we have a reason to be optimistic. 
Absolutely, absolutely. On the on the note of optimism, Shailene, um, do you? I mean, it must be so tough for you, right? You're someone who's a scientist, you're trained in science, and and boys, some of that deep understanding and richness about where everything comes from, why it happens, has come through so amazingly in this conversation. Do you sometimes, again, in your quiet moment, Shailene, and I know you're a very reflective person. You know, do you sit back and think about, um, it must feel like so much doom and gloom because you're at the heart of it. You know, you're you're leading something very important as the chief strategy officer responsible for, you know, such such big issues at a big foundation hospital in the National Health Service in the UK. Do you sometimes wonder what would it look like and feel like if things were good? <laughs> so someone said to me, you're in a field where you know, there's never ending need to make improvement and changes. Isn't this tiring? Um, I I actually think that holding on to what it could look like um, and uh, and having that end vision uh, and always journeying, you know, and, and for me, enjoying that journey is really important. So mm-hmm. what it look like what would it feel like for me there will be less polarization there will be more connectedness about what unites us as human beings living in an ecosystem that is fragile but has the potential to be regenerative yeah. you, you um, talk about regenerative a lot Shalina. I know you feel very strongly about that yeah yeah I was in the hamburger bun of art gallery in Berlin very recently mm. I came across the work of David Chevalier called mm. Shifting Collective, in which mm. he mapped the Twitter sphere of the French political landscape to understand what he calls the social decohesion mm. and the slide into populism and the trivialization of xenophobia and the nationalist and extremist discourses. Mm. Um, of course, it isn't a new country experiencing this. And for me, uh, what would be good would be the opposite of this. So a growing discourse and exploration of new ways of thinking and being, policies that support the health of us all, our interconnectedness, our connections to each other, as well as to the planet, uh, and how we all interact within it. Mm-hmm. Um, so an example, in Kate Raworth's Donut Economics, she prompts us to think about the needs of all within the means of the planet, and she mm-hmm. says that um, donut of social and planetary boundaries um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a playfully serious approach to framing the challenge to ensure that no one falls short in life's essentials, yeah. so food, yeah. housing, health, political voice, um, whilst ensuring that collectively we don't overshoot our pressure uh, on Earth's life-supporting systems on which we are fundamentally dependent. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Even climate, fertile soils and a protective frozen layer. What would be good would be our recognition that complex system challenges can't possibly be answered by one field or one discipline or one group of people because our actions have both intended and unintended consequences in a systems dynamic world. Uh, So we would be focusing on regeneration, we'd be focusing on resilience, we'd be focusing on salutogenesis, health creation. Yeah, amazing, Shirley. You know, the, the whole thing about, you know, this whole everything is interconnected and i think again you know i'm i'm you know i'm not 
I'm not working in health, but you know, the, if anything, the the pandemic proved everything that you've just talked about. You know, that um, nothing that happens in one part of the world remains disconnected or too far from from the other. Um, and therefore, you know, regeneration and resilience, and indeed deep collaboration, is is definitely the the way forward. And that is probably your closest definition of what good would look like, right, Charlene? You know, Absolutely. if you were to if you were to have a um, Charlene, we are coming to the coming to the end of what has been a very intense and very very interesting conversation. Lots and lots of penny dropping moments for me in terms of how to look at the world, really, when you're looking at it through the lens of health. Um, the one that I wanted to ask you, and I've always learned um, uh, in, about this in my conversations with you, has there been an experience in your life that's shaped the way you look at the big health conversations? Um, I'm surely you must think about why do you respond to certain things in a certain way? What is it about your childhood or your lived experience that leads you to respond like that? Um, any thoughts on that, Charlene? Well, growing up in Malaysia, I believe has really shaped how I look at um, the big conversations and the big health conversations. So um, as a child, I would play with uh, my friends who are Indians, Chinese, Malays, you know, people from any uh, ethnic group. And uh, we have lots of public holidays that celebrate all the different religious festivals of the Muslims, the Hindus, the Christians, the, the Buddhists. Lots of parties, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, and that was when I was six or seven. And when I grew up, I started to realize that actually the world was uh, around me was much more divided. Um, and if you look at, for example, the major political parties, mm. they are actually uh, separated by race. Mm. And I think that was probably the start and the origin of a rebellion against system mm. that reinforced division. So mm. you know, I saw a very different world as a child to one where I started to understand the world and then uh, which was much more divided um, and I guess has, uh, you know, propelled me towards systems that celebrate mm. diversity and plurality. And I've been really fortunate uh, in, in my life uh, in terms of my journey in health more specifically, you know, from my parents who've always taken a whole person approach to health and wellness, my teachers who encouraged me to think beyond health, Peter Senge who awoke my curiosity in system, um, so Harry Burns who talked to me about positive deviance, so those who become, you know, um, the adverse social determinants, Julia, of course, Middleton, yes. who talked to me about, you know, leading beyond authority and, you know, um, uh, going beyond, you know, what it is that your job is about and so on, and introduced me to this concept decades ago yeah. and introduced yourself. Um, and people in the front line who, uh, you know, day in and day out uh, are so very committed and passionate about their purpose uh, mm. to care for those who are sick uh, and, and vulnerable. And um, I've always been grateful to, to people who have been there at key points in my journey who have encouraged me to pursue what I'm passionate about, especially on days when it feels as though there hasn't been much yeah. progress being made. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then more personally, I suppose, um, you know, just to maintain my sanity and <laughs> keep healthy, um, I, I enjoy and I've been inspired by people from all walks of life. Um, uh, people give me joy and help me see and feel and hear the world from different perspectives. 
from musicians like Bowie Bach, uh, artists, architects. I love Frank, what you write. You know, to him, architecture was not just about buildings. It's about nourishing the lives of those who live within them. Uh, and he created truly organic buildings developed from within outwards uh, and, and is in harmony with its time, place and, and it, it, inhabitants. Um, so, so, you know, it's been, it's a, it's been a whole range, uh, uh, I guess, of people who have influenced me uh, and supported me on this journey. Amazing, Charlene. You know, that deep, that deep sense of realization to being committed to systems and, and sort of living that all your life. You've, I feel like you constantly live that. You know, you're a deep person of science, trained as a scientist, PhD in, in you know, in science. But equally, you know, you are, you, your experience and life experience touches upon so many things and you allow yourself to be open and influenced by so many things. It's just simply incredible to hear you, um, you approach it. And, you know, you talked about hope, Charlene. Well, what will stick with me from this conversation is that every time I feel doom and gloom about the health service, you know, and whether it will be ready for the future, I will think about that it's got people like you um, at its helm, somewhere in the system, you know, driving it, thinking about it purposefully and doing everything that, that's needed to join up the dots. Um, and make true collaboration and innovation happen, draw, drawing from their different life experiences and, and their deep, deep faith and hope. There are so. millions and millions of us, Adi. So uh, <laughs> thank you uh, for this opportunity. Uh, and uh, it's been a delight to have had this uh, uh, conversation. And, uh, you know, the work that you do, I think, is inspiring all, uh, is inspiring all of us to, to keep thinking about these conversations we need to have um, you know, because uh, there are a large number of us who, who have this purpose and this drive. Uh, so thank you. A very special thank you to Shirley for sitting down with me and to all of you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please do take the time to rate us and leave us a review so that others can find us and join the conversation too. We very much look forward to having you join us again soon.